0: To the Scottish Garden Podcast. I'm Julianne Robertson and this is episode six where we're speaking to Jim German from Branklin Garden in Perth about Scottish plant hunters, national collections, blue poppies and our beautiful balanced Scottish climate. Welcome to the Scottish Garden Podcast. Branklin Garden in Perth is a hidden gem thousands of people must pass it every day sitting as it does off the main road into the city on the side of canoel hill in its two acres you'll find rare and unusual specimens from all around the world there are alpines woodland plants and a number of national collections including mechanopsis the beautiful blue himalayan poppy I spoke to Jim German this month, July 2019. He is the property manager and head gardener at Branklin Garden, which includes the gorgeous arts and crafts style house, which used to belong to John and Dorothy Renton. From the 1920s onwards, they were responsible for collecting and curating these specimens from all around the world, grown from seed gathered by some of Scotland's renowned plant hunters. And this has shaped the garden you can see there today. Jim talks about how the Scottish climate provides the perfect conditions for plants such as Meconopsis and Cassiopeia compared to many other parts of Britain. We also discuss the maintenance of the garden and how passionate he feels about encouraging more people and especially young people into horticulture as a career. So let's get into the discussion. So we're sitting in Branklin Garden in Perth and I am sitting here with a sense of shame because as I've already admitted to you, I live about 20 minutes away and have never been in here before but I sense already from having a, a, a look around that it's a bit of a hidden gem, would that be fair to say?
1: Absolutely, it's a, a small garden, I mean just two acres in, uh, in size, it's a long and narrow and uh, so it is almost hidden because we're tucked in underneath Canoole Hill uh, sort of looking out towards Creef and the, the hills beyond so not many people who are not familiar with plants and gardens would be familiar with it um,
0: Can you give me a little bit of history of the place It's obviously been here for a long, long time?
1: The uh, Rentons uh, John and Dorothy Renton purchased the uh, property in 1922 and uh, John was in real estate and uh, his wife very keen gardener uh, built uh, an arts and crafts house and then gradually developed the garden within this two acre um, site on a fairly steep slope um, underneath Canole Hill so um, quite a project probably you could say for 10 full years they were constructing the garden from 1922 and once uh, John Renton had uh, passed away then the garden was passed on to the National Trust for Scotland in the mid-1960s.
0: And um, how have you ended up here, just out of interest?
1: Well, I I come from a a horticultural background. I uh, had a nursery business in Berwickshire growing alpine plants for 20 years and then uh, took up the reins of organising Gardening Scotland at uh, Ingolston, um, which uh, was very exciting and uh, challenging. Then I heard that um, Branklin Garden, part of the National Trust for Scotland, was looking for a uh, um, property manager, stroke head gardener, and they were having difficulty, and, and I was sort of coming to a transition in my life, and thinking, well, you know, I've got some years before my sell-by date, <laughs> uh, so I knew the garden well, um, by repute, for its uh, wonderful range of plants, and thought, yeah, my wife and I would like to settle here, to live here and look after the property.
0: And how have you found it? Has it been what you expected?
1: Absolutely, very challenging. I think, you know, um, having been in the private sector all my life and uh, being self-employed can call the shots. It's very different uh, entering into the public sector and uh, listening very carefully to the National Trust for Scotland's um, system, but uh, absolutely no issues at all. We love it.
0: Now, um, the plants here. This, this, as you say, this was um, this garden was created over some time, a, a long time ago, and I believe plant hunters had a very big role to play in what has been uh, planted and is what is currently growing here. Can you give me a little bit of a sense of what, I suppose, what that has contributed to the garden?
1: Yeah, really. All the mature plants that you see round about you, we're sitting under a lovely eucryphia from Chile here, all these mature plants have been introduced by plant collectors. Uh, Really from the 1920s, it was the the golden era for plant collectors. And we think of uh, individuals like Ludlow and Sheriff, George Forrest, uh, Scots, and uh, Joseph Rock from the United States, Frank Kingdon Ward, English, these were collectors who were allowed into the Himalaya, into far-reaching countries like the Caucasus, Japan, and so on, and they were introducing seed, and much of the seed was coming back to influential uh, gardens and uh, plants people in, from the 1920s up until the uh, Second War, where a number of these countries become closed to uh, collectors. And there was a lot of camaraderie between these uh, big properties in Scotland, so Branklin is one of a number, you know, Keeler Castle, Screevy, up towards Kirimure, Uh, just so many properties, and and they would all have had uh, gin and tonic parties together (laughs) and discussed new introductions, shared seed, etc. So Mm -hmm. from the 20s, all these exciting introductions would have played a major part in these properties of which Branklin is one.
0: Okay, I love the idea of a, a gin and tonic party mm-hmm. where you get to swap seeds. I think I might have to reinvent that <laughs> for the modern day. <laughs> um, so really uh, Scotland had quite a, um, a, a big part to play then in the introduction of various species as opposed to perhaps Britain as a whole?
1: That's important because of the climate. Mm-hmm. We're so much cooler here in Scotland, theoretically, I mean uh, when, I, when I think we're warm uh, 1924 degrees celsius um, and taking off our jackets and sometimes a wee bit uncomfortable. We look at our neighbours down at Wisley for example near Guildford in Surrey and it's 2832. So that's the difference. So we can grow for example a wide range of, of Himalayan plants particularly one of our key plants here are the blue poppies, Mechinopsis. Mm-hmm. Now, they simply don't exist, really, at Wisley in Surrey because it's too hot, too dry. So Scottish gardens are paramount for the uh, protection of and conservation of many of these important genera from the Himalaya, and Branklin plays a big part in that. Mm-hmm.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about mechanopsis actually, because I've recently acquired two wow, small, wonderful. small wonderful. blue poppies. Uh, I've placed them in my garden. They haven't flowered this year, but I wasn't really expecting that no, anyway. That's a good thing. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. So, what is what is there? What's so special about them, and what is the best way to care for these little plants?
1: Well, they were introduced. in uh, The first ones were introduced to gardens in uh, 1922, three by Frank Kingdon Ward from Tibet. And uh, unsurprisingly, they went towards Kew Gardens and and Southern Gardens, and they perished. Uh, But they were brought to fame at Chelsea Flower Show, uh, which was important. And then people north of the border got to find out that uh, there was such a thing, and they thrived. That was the first introduction. Then in the uh, uh, mid-1930s, Ludlow and Sheriff introduced another species, Mechanopsis grandis, from Bhutan. And that too... was to become a very important species and that's uh, a a plant that has hybridized to produce countless beautiful hybrids of which you might have two and they need to be grown in a sheltered uh, position. They need an acid soil and an abundance of moisture. Now we're getting drier and drier due to climate change on the east of Scotland so I have to say that this season I've been so thankful for the rainfall that we've had, which we didn't have last year. I live here so I can come out and water. You can see the um, irrigation system and moisture is key. So if you have a garden that's exposed, full sun, dries out, forget it. The further west you go, the better they grow. But we don't have midges here. So yes. I can enjoy gardening on a wet <laughs> evening, and I'm not um, troubled with midgets. Whereas if I but was looking after a property in Argyll, mm. say where the mechanopsis would be thriving, the primulus would be thriving, it's a different story.
0: <laughs> I think we've got the best of both worlds I though, think in so. that case. <laughs> Excellent. Um, okay, so um, and you've you've got a national collection here, so I'm guessing you have a lot of different varieties of the blue poppy.
1: Over fifty different no. uh, varieties, the majority of which are. Sterile cultivars, so they've been raised as hybrids, and uh, we're selecting. I'm involved with the Mechanopsis group, which is based in the Botanics in Edinburgh, a worldwide organisation looking at Mechanopsis, both species and cultivars. But we're mostly concerned about the big blue poppies here, and trying to sort them out. and And if we've got three varieties, I mean, you're looking at three varieties here. And if there, frankly, isn't a huge difference between them, then we can dispense with the weakest. Mm. However, we would keep the weak ones because we're a national collection holder, but really um, promote the strongest. Mm. So we're really, like a mini botanic garden here, we are conserving species and hybrids, but we're also doing a, a, a lot of experimental work and, and research. The same time.
0: And is that part and parcel of being a National Collection holder? Then you've got to research and as well as sort of maintain and, and prolong the plant.
1: Yes. We, as a National Collection holder we're not competing with the Botanic Garden. Botanical Garden is a custodian to species that have been collected from different parts of the world. Uh, national collection holders should be looking after garden plants which have been raised in gardens, mainly hybrids and cultivars, and, as you say, looking at them carefully to see which are the strongest, which are not preso- not so prone to disease and pests, etc. So it's a process, and um, it involves a lot of record-keeping, and so we take record-keeping very seriously here for all the plants. Every single plant in the garden here is uh, recorded, Um, have hard copy from the 1920s. Clearly Mrs Renton didn't have a computer. We we have everything computerized and we back it up in the cloud etc. So it's terribly important.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I believe you also are a collection holder of Cassiope. That's one that I am not familiar with. Can you tell me a little bit more about that plant? Yeah,
1: you're sitting right beside them. There, that's a a little heather from uh, the Himalayas, and they have little um, white bell-shaped flowers in the spring, and uh, they're very beautiful. Mm -hmm. They're short-lived in terms of flowering, so they form a a, a nice neat clump. Mm -hmm. They like ericaceous soil again, so Mm -hmm. again, conditions here, we're on an acid soil, so um, lots of extra humus and uh, moisture-retentive material. I'm not allowed to use the word that uh, Goes very well with them. That begins with P and ends with T.
0: Um,
1: oh. <laughs> but if one has a sustainable source of uh, this material, uh, it is of course peat. Then uh, it's it's the best material for growing Cassiope's
0: Okay. So, but I suppose maybe do the cassiopias? I get the sense of play sort of maybe are fall into the shadow of the more showy and uh, popular um, nikonopsis.
1: Undoubtedly, be, yes, <laughs> because we have a, a national collection of uh, talientzi group rhododendrons as well as, uh, we don't have a national collection, but we have a collection of uh, the Dr. North lilies from um, Milnefield, from Invergarry, and we're building up on that. And, do you know, having maintaining collections can be a two-edged sword. It, it puts a lot of pressure on you as an individual. If you have a national collection of um, a particular type of lily, you've got to you really need to have a minimum of three plants of each of the cultivars and you need to um, make sure that they're free of lily beetle and uh, maladies that attack lilies, etc. So it's, it's a big responsibility. I mean, we're a small garden, uh, myself and Alistair, who are paid gardeners, and we have a team of 50 volunteers. So it puts a lot of pressure on the team, as it were.
0: That's exactly what I was going to ask next, actually, just how, how, how big the team is, but obviously you're outlining that there are a lot of volunteers, so vo- you rely a yeah, lot they're on, on volunteers are amazing. Volunteers
1: boss me about, and uh, <laughs> they are superb. Uh, the vast majority of the volunteers are relatively local. Uh, some of them will drive up, say, from Glenrothes, Falker, mm. from Errol, uh, round about Ochterada, uh, up, up towards uh, Blairgowrie, but... Um, They come in perhaps one or two days max in a week. um, And they just love the, it's a form of therapy. Mm. Working here, we try to be very nice to our volunteers. They are the linchpin, after all, of all National Trust for Scotland properties, whether it's a castle or a garden, the volunteers um, really keep keep the National Trust for Scotland properties on the go.
0: That's it, I suppose when you think about it, it's an amazing opportunity to work in a garden which yes you know it's lovely working in your own garden Uh but here there's so many different varieties and there are different challenges and there's uh, a different experience to be had than you know cultivating your own soil and and what you can grow in your own space.
1: You're absolutely right I mean we have an apprenticeship um, scheme in the National Trust for Scotland and uh, sometime in this month we'll be taking on a young one shouldn't be discriminatory these days with age, but uh, we are obviously trying to look for youngsters who will who come on in the horticultural world and take an interest in maintaining gardens have an interest in plants so we're taking on an, an apprentice for two years uh, here, uh, and we'll train that apprentice uh, and have a lot of fun I mean, it'll be a two-way experience um, so the training process is terribly important
0: mm-hmm. in your experience um, do you think there are enough people to think horticulture is becoming a more popular career choice is it uh, still something that we need to really work to encourage young people or older people into or, or is it sort of growing again is, it, is there a resurgence
1: young people for sure yeah I mean I left school mostly keen on sport and I took up horticulture because I loved it, I knew that I wouldn't be earning what some of my pals would be earning having been through uni and uh, becoming lawyers and vets and doctors but that never bothered me and um, today young people are often salary focused and um, we find particularly through the colleges, the SIUC uh, colleges that uh, the students are often career change. So when I was involved with Gardening Scotland and we were involved with the colleges and creating show gardens, I would notice that the majority of the students were your age, mm-hmm. mature. Yeah. And um, they had been in a former life, perhaps lawyers or doctors, and wanted to change uh, to something more therapeutic. So, But it's young people. Yeah, that's the challenge. I mean, we have a relationship with Kino Primary School and the kids come in here and they have so much fun you know they they just soak it all up they have a look at all the carnivorous plants in our little boggy area there they love the pond mm-hmm. and you can ask them questions and they answer very maturely and then suddenly they become teenagers mm-hmm. because i have two two children myself and i remember the transition from being quite keen as youngsters to, oh, excuse me, that's no longer cool to help dad at the shows and so on. So, yeah, it's a challenge. Mm. Um, we've got to make the profession exciting, we've got to make it relevant, and we've certainly got to improve the um, salaries. Mm. That's important. Yeah,
0: I think that is probably, yeah, it's pretty crucial to encouraging people in, it like is. it or not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so what about your favourite plant or your favourite part of this garden then, having been here for? It's
1: jolly really hard because you know I am I love snowdrops. I'm sadly, perhaps one of these galanthophiles who collects snowdrops so that they all kick off in February and then we have erythroniums, trilliums and so on in the spring. Lots of uh, daffodils, narcissus, which we love. Then the rhododendrons come in. However, I'm captivated by the blue poppies here because the very best of them are so special and when people come round the corner they come in through the entrance they come round and then they see a stand of blue poppies and they just in awe they, they stop and say oh my goodness what's, what's this and obviously some people do know about blue poppies but many of our visitors don't mm-hmm. and so yeah the blue poppies I think I would have to say are my most favoured plants here because they are unique, they do very well here. The team that we have working pay a lot of attention to detail and looking after them. And when you see the response from visitors that's probably part of it as well.
0: So the best time for you to come then you would expect would be sort of Mid-May. May May onwards, Mid-May. Yeah. yeah. This
1: year I mean we had the first few flowering at the end of April because we had an early season this yes. year if you mm-hmm. remember and then suddenly it got much cooler. I mean, we have an open fire in the house, and it seems kind of bizarre, but we were having the fire on Mm at the end of May into June. You think that, excuse me, open fires and a single malt in the evening is a a winter exploit, but it suddenly got much cooler. So they were lasting much longer, the blue poppies. So I think this has been a great year, and there are still some in flower now, which is very unusual to have quite a few in flower in July.
0: I know, I've noticed in my garden actually the rhododendrons are lasting forever and they're yeah, yeah, yeah. flowering at the same time as the uh, the delphiniums, the roses, and everything. Know. It just seems It's
1: an unusual it's nice, combination. It, it is, is nice. Yeah, I mean, Magnolia yeah, siboldi yeah. right beside us yeah. here is should be finished. It's looking okay. yeah. super.
0: You obviously, I think maybe you consider that climate and the way things are going maybe is one of the main changes, mm-hmm. uh, one of the main challenges now facing gardens. Yes, yeah,
1: yeah. it is. I mean, there's yeah. no doubt that. Um, people are changing their, their uh, style of gardening, and when I when I was uh, doing my apprenticeship both in, in England, Scotland, and in Munich where I was trained, grasses were useful, uh, filled in spaces. But Because of the um, changing climate with warmer and drier, grasses have become a, an integral part of, of plant des- uh, garden and plant design, and I'm thinking much more about, you know, we should be planting more grasses in open sunny spots because they tolerate drought and a lot of the plants don't. Um, so we, we are thinking again, Scotland, we're fortunate, that we're probably coping better. But if, yeah, if you go south of the border, it's pretty serious and um, rhododendrons and azaleas need a lot of mulching. They need a much cooler position. So people are thinking about plants from Chile that like more sunshine and and drought.
0: It's funny, that we're in Scotland and yet we've got this affinity with plants from a country so far away.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It is important just to re-emphasise the fact that we're trying to encourage more young people um, and families. So at Branklin Garden, despite just being an incredible collection of plants in a wonderful garden. The tea room has become one of the most popular entities um, here and attract we attract now more people who are not so necessarily keen on plants. They enjoy the garden but because they, they love the tea room and they maybe sit and enjoy the ambience, then, then they start to look a little bit more closely at the plants in the garden. So the tea room is um, I think it's a, a, a carrot
0: <laughs>
1: yes. in, uh, yeah. that we're dangling to attract yeah. more people.
0: Sounds like g- cake, really, should be the yes. gateway drug to Indeed. plants. Indeed.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah. you're right. And
0: then when you're there, you get to do gin and tonic and yeah, yeah, swaps. Yeah, I know. Awesome. Wonderful. All of that is speaking my language. Yeah. <laughs> Hope you'll agree that was a really interesting delve into a garden which has got a very rich and fascinating history and is testament to the plant hunters of old and to the gardeners who've looked after the space since it was created. It also struck me that Jim is the second person I've interviewed for the podcast who's expressed a real keenness for families and children to come into the garden more and experience what a place like that has to offer and perhaps there's more to be done to encourage this as obviously the benefits of being outside are huge, and not to mention getting young people started early on appreciating plants and the joys of growing them. Something for us all to consider, perhaps. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find more details on Branklin Garden and the usual social media links in the show notes, along with all of my own details and various ways to contact the Scottish Garden podcast, should you wish to do so. We're going to have a well-earned break next month and I hope to return in September with some more growing goodness from north of the border. Until then, be happy and well in your garden. Goodbye.